from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. For the first time since she was elected to her post in 2016, Tammy Duckworth is part of a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. And now the Illinois Democrat is hoping to use her newfound power to provide minority communities with environmental justice. Duckworth talks with St. Louis Public Radio's Eric Schmidt and the We Live Here team on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio and the host of Politically Speaking. What you're about to hear is a collaboration between St. Louis Public Radio's Metro East reporter Eric Schmidt and Jialing Yang and Lauren Brown of We Live Here. The trio interviewed U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth about environmental legislation that she's sponsoring in Congress's upper chamber. You can catch a We Live Here episode about how Duckworth and Congresswoman Cori Bush are pushing for environmental justice bills this week on stlpr.org or wherever you get your podcast. But for now, here's the conversation with Duckworth in its entirety. How does the Environmental Justice Mapping and Data Collection Act of 2021, which you recently introduced with Representative Cori Bush and Senator Ed Markey, differ from or build upon previous environmental justice legislation? Well, what it does is, is that it, and it builds on a lot of the other uh, environmental justice legislation, but it also, um, the whole thrust of it is to really recognize environmental justice as a civil right. So for example, one of the things that it does is that it amends and strengthens the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, that prohibits discrimination based on disparate impacts and overturns uh, a, a court case. So you know, what, I'm try- what I'm trying to show is that, um, that's new, is that this is a civil right and that we are infringing on people's civil rights when we allow them to be discriminated based on access to a clean environment. Um, uh, it also builds on existing legislation like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act by explicitly adding language that says that you have to consider cumulative impacts when you make a permit decision. So when, you know, in the past under the Clean Water Act, somebody could apply for a permit and, a, you know, to do something, right? And I don't know, build, build a new jetty, whatever that is. Under the Clean Water Act, they have to ask for a permit. Um, those were considered in a single uh, one permit at a time, not on the cumulative effect. So you could actually have what happens in these black and brown communities and, and poorer communities in particular is you have permit after permit after permit is granted and cumulatively they add to a significant environmental pollutants, say, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, toxins in the atmosphere that then result in high rates of childhood asthma. But if you only look at it one permit at a time, it doesn't seem like very much. Um, it also, again, strengthens existing legislation and executive orders. Uh, it, it codifies the Clinton administration's environmental justice executive order by creating a working group to ensure compliance and enforcement and to develop a government-wide strategy. So that it's not just something that the EPA worries about, that, 
but in fact, the Department of Defense should worry about environmental justice as well. Um, so should the Department of Commerce, so should the Small Business Administration. It should be a whole of government approach to environmental justice. Mm -hmm. um, and then so there are other things in there as well um, that, that really builds on existing, uh, strengthens, um, uh, builds on existing legislation, strengthens executive orders, but then also brings this new attitude of um, this is a civil right and uh, we need to recognize it as such. So that's part of the Environmental Justice Act, some of the uh, existing updates to uh, updates to existing law. What are some of the important additions that the Environmental Justice for All Act makes? I know that there are some grant programs or many grant programs in there. Can you can you talk about those too? Sure. So um, it, there's one that um, is uh, funds programs to study potentially harmful products marketed towards women and girls of color, for example. Um, you think of hair products um, uh, as an example. Um, uh, looks also at things like skin lightening creams and things like that. Um, uh, 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 you know, just when, when you target a particular uh, uh, subset of our population based on their race, uh, um, you know, we need to make sure that there's health equity there. Um, uh, it also provides programs that would ensure more equitable access to parks in the outdoors so that there is outdoor access to all. And this came to me in, in, in two, different, um, two different things brought this to my attention. One, as a wheelchair user, I have a hard time accessing outdoor spaces, especially national parks and the like. And the national parks are currently going through a process of making them all wheelchair accessible. They have not all been that way. The other is in Chicago, there was a study that came out um, about 18 months ago that said that uh, Chicago with a wonderful lakeshore, um, on average has one day a year when the lakeshore beaches would be shut down um, due to, uh, poor water quality. Um, and, and so if you're up north uh, near the Magnificent Mile or some of the wealthier suburbs up north, you may have one day a year when that lake, when that beach might be shut down. But if you're on the south side of Chicago, which is a largely black community, um, they have an average of 39 days a year where that lake, where that beach is shut down. That's not fair. And so the, the uh, bill includes um, programs that will ensure more equitable access to parks and the outdoors. And then there are also environmental justice grant programs for research, education, and projects to address environmental and public health issues. So these bills are certainly historic, but sometimes people aren't aware of the deep history of Black-led environmental justice efforts. Can you tell us how Hazel Johnson's legacy inspired you to start the Environmental Justice Caucus in the U.S. Senate? Well, you know, this is this is one of these things that I really didn't know about until I um, started meeting and, 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 and talking with um, uh, environmental justice activists, and they talk about how, you know, it's, it's really individuals who stood up and said, this is not right at a time when they may not even have had uh, basic civil rights uh, as, as persons of color. We're also arguing that this is part of civil rights and this is part of justice as well. Um, our, new, our new head of EPA, you know, uh, Mr. Regan has is, is done this in, uh, from his home state of North Carolina as well. Um, I'm, that's why I'm so pleased that President Biden nominated him to be the new head of the EPA. Um, this whole idea that uh, environmental justice is something that is worth fighting for, just like uh, civil rights, and that it is a component of civil rights was something that was really eye-opening to, to me. And it's why I, I, I really came up with this idea of starting the Environmental Justice Caucus in the Senate. Turning to some specific examples, for the past few years, you've been advocating on behalf of the residents of Centerville, which and that community will fold into Co to, to Cahokia Heights later this year. Mm -hmm. For some of our listeners who may not know, 
What is the crisis that Centerville residents have been experiencing for decades? And I'm wondering if you could also explain how that is an example of environmental racism, too. Yes. So what happened in Centerville, this is this is a decades long process. It used to be a much more um, diverse uh, area of Illinois. Um, uh, but over the years, we've had white flight happen. So it is now largely an African-American community. And what has happened over the years was from the previous generations, whenever decisions were being made at City Hall to upgrade basic infrastructure in the community, they upgraded the, the, the wealthier parts of town first and really left the uh, what, turned, what has become uh, the largely uh, black and brown community, uh, portions of the town uh, without being upgraded. One of these things is the sewer system. And so when they got new pumps, uh, uh, new, new sewer system, when they had made any type of upgrades, it went to the wealthier portions. Um, and now after decades of this, we now have a situation where the town uh, community, the, the, the largely uh, the poorer sections of town and now largely the whole town, um, those portions where um, people of color live have Anytime it rains, there's raw sewage that actually backs up into people's homes and, and you can see toilet paper in people's front yards. And it's just literally decades of <clears throat> neglect and, and basically racist policies and investments in infrastructure repairs and uh, infrastructure upgrades. They've now banded together with several other communities within the region that are gonna be called the Cahokia Heights uh, community. And I've been working with them to try to help them win some federal grants in order to upgrade the sewer system. They've been talking to our governor uh, to try to get some state funding as well to come in um, and, and to really take some of these decision making out of local policymakers and have it be a really independent review of where do you really need this fix. But, but basically you get to a point now decades later where you have a real disparity in something as basic as you know, access to a sewer system that works. Um, what's at stake if communities of color continue to bear the brunt of intentional environmental injustices? For example, a group of Chicago activists are on a were on a hunger strike um, about a recycling plant moving their operations from a mostly affluent white neighborhood to a southeast east side, mostly Latino neighborhood. How has structural racism contributed to this controversy? Well, you know, this is one of the things that I, th this is the permitting issue. Um, uh, uh, so the, the, the white neighborhood said, hey, we don't want this, we don't want you to be, um, you know, doing this work here. Um, and so they denied the permit there, but then they request a permit in this largely Latino, uh, Latin accent and black community. But because the permit, there's not this rule that says you have to look at the cumulative effects. They only look at the one permit, um, uh, forgetting that we've actually had an auto um, metals reclamation uh, a yard there that has been putting manganese into the air, that this area has been exposed to pet coke, uh, that this area has been, um, has actually some brown fields and this area, you know, nobody looked at the cumulative effects. That's why I have that, 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 that requirement in the bill that I put forward. But you are right. This is, this is really, um, when we talk about Black Lives Matter and we talk about uh, uh, civil rights and, and, and structural racism in our society, especially after last summer, People think of it in terms of the criminal justice system, but they don't recognize that it exists just within the very structure of things like um, uh, building code permits and, and, and the like, uh, that it is, the, it is the black and brown communities that have been the places where we have put our most polluting industries. 
And even when it's not what we put up with most polluting industries, those residents lack the resources to fight those industries when they move into the local area. A, a, a related example is ethylene oxide. We have um, a plant that actually cleans medical devices and it uses gas, ethylene oxide. Um, there's a plant on uh, in a, a community called Burr Ridge. This is a very wealthy, affluent, white, largely white neighborhood. Um, and then they were also in um, a Waukegan, Illinois, which is a largely Latinx community. Um, the white community were able to band together activists. Uh, they had the spare time, the resources, and they were able to demand and get EPA monitoring of the air there. But the EPA never put an air monitor in the, in the Latinx community, even though those folks were asking for it as well, um, because the EPA had more focus on the white community than they did the, the, the brown community. And that Waukegan actually, the city was actually contemplating taking out a loan so that it could pay for its own um, air monitoring to protect its own residents. That's structural racism. That's a classic example. And, and we need to stop that. With all of the work that you're doing um, for environmental issues, what kind of environment are you hoping to create for the next generation? Oh, I mean, I want, I want, a, a, and I have a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old daughter. I want them to have a better environment than the one that I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s and the one that we're living in right now. I want a carbon neutral future before they become adults. Um, you know, I, I, I want us to get to a place where the environment is something that they can enjoy. And, and, and you know, I hope that they will read about environmental pollutions and, and all of that in history books. Um, and, and, and I want it to be available to all because I want my daughters to experience it, but I also want, you know, their friends to have it no matter where they live in this country as well. Thank you again, Senator Duckworth, for all your time. We'll have to return you back to the business of votes. And thank you again for speaking on all these questions. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this episode of Politically Speaking. Be sure to check out STLPR for all the information you need about We Live Here and our political coverage. Both Politically Speaking and We Live Here are productions of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.